watching at home. We're looking out for you. When I was a kid, and probably in my teen years, it was very popular at that time, at the end of a camp or a retreat or end of a program year, that there'd be like a, a montage of pictures would be put up on a screen and, um, and music would accompany that. Some sort of sentimental song would accompany uh, those, those pictures. I remember the first uh, mission experience I took middle schoolers on, and this is how long ago this was. Uh, I remember running down to One Hour Photo uh, to turn in uh, the film uh, so they could be turned into slides. They said they could do it in 24 hours for turn into slides. And then loading a carousel uh, that we then advanced manually while someone advanced the music uh, in the back of the room and stuff. Technology, of course, changed, and so you're able to do much more uh, things on computers pretty quickly after that. Um, but that was a popular practice. And, and one of the songs that would show up quite often uh, was a song by Michael W. Smith that debuted in 1983, Friends. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Now, if you've heard the show Friends, this is not that. <laughs> Chorus comes in with good old Smitty singing, Friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. And a friend will not say never because the welcome will not end. And that song would play and you just in the room as the pictures are going, you're seeing all these scenes from your life and you're, you're watching this and people would start side-hugging. Couple sniffles in the room, barely a dry eye, as people reminisced about the last nine months of their lives <laughs> together, or the last week, or the last weekend. Well, if the technology existed and if the song had been written at a much earlier time, I kind of wonder if Paul would create a video montage for the Galatian Christians and that friends would play alongside that. Because look what he says in verses 12 through 16 about their relationship. In first part of verse 12, he says they became like one another. Um, and so he identifies that piece there. He says in the second part of verse 12, there's no accusation being made. And so there's a relationship that exists there. Uh, he's, he's not uh, blaming them or accusing them of anything at this point. Uh, it says Paul was welcomed by them despite his condition. We see that in verses 13 and 14. Uh, this line in verse 15 pretty big stuff. He says that they would have torn out their eyes for him. Kind of like you'd given your right arm. It's the term we might use in our own contemporary expression. And Paul says in verse 16 that he's telling them the truth. And so in this first part of our, our, our text this morning, we see there's an actual relationship that exists there between this apostle and this audience that he's writing to. And of course, if we look at the, uh, the types of terms or the phrases, the themes that are being addressed here in relationship, uh, N.T. Wright, who is the author of the commentary uh, we've been looking together with a group on Wednesdays, he says this about this. These are actually standard themes of friendship that would be found in the philosophical writings of the day. And so the themes that Paul addresses are, are things that would have been uh, well-known, well-spoken of uh, in his own culture, things that they would talk about when they talk about the nature of friendship. But why? Why bring this up with this, this Jesus community? Why, why talk to these Jesus followers? Why lead off with uh, this whole kind of flowery friendship kind of pieces after you've done a long discourse on, on kind of what we'd say is Christian uh, theology or understanding what the gospel is? Why would, you, why would Paul go there? Well, a few reasons here. One is this. Something has gone wrong and a rift has formed. Something's gone wrong and a rift has formed here. And we've already seen that throughout Galatians. We've seen that in these first few chapters uh, that what's, what's happening here is agitators 
Uh, and we know the story. Agitators have come. They're, they're convincing these Jesus followers to, to chase after a different kind of gospel, uh, a, a no gospel, if you will, um, claiming that entry into Jesus' community would require uh, observance to Jewish customs and practices, that males in this congregation would literally have to be circumcised in order to belong. And this all adds up to what we might call Jesus plus, right? So it's, it's Jesus is not enough here. It's not Christ's faithfulness. It requires a lot more uh, to the story here. And so Paul has already called and, and shown us this rift, has already shown us that there's, there's a, a, a broken place here. And soon we can expect that corrective action will be called for, that Paul is going to lead them to that place. So Paul draws on the relationship. He doesn't just come out with the bazooka and just level them. He says, we, we have an actual relationship here. There's something here that's important uh, and something that we're going to draw on here as, we, as I make these next few statements. The other thing you see here is there's an imperative that's listed here that Paul wants them to see. That's a major part of Paul's ministry and his mission. It's the first imperative, actually, that shows up in Galatians. Uh, as you go along through the, all the chapters, you finally get to this point. It's the first imperative that Paul makes to them, the first kind of command where he says, become as I am, in verse 12. Of course, they know Paul. He's already outlined those places where their, their lives have intersected. Uh, he, they even know probably just based on his life and who he was, what he said to them when he was with them, how he acted. Uh, they know what he's calling them to. But a reader here in modern times, we're only hearing one side of this letter. It's like we're hearing one side of the conversation on the phone. And so as we come here, we may say, well, how do I become like Paul? Like, what, what does that look like? Um, what does that lifestyle look like? And, and we know throughout Paul's writing, this idea of imitating Paul is something that shows up uh, quite a bit uh, throughout those writings. Let me bring one up here that's not out of one of Paul's writings, but out of a writing of one of his contemporaries and one of his traveling companions. Acts chapter 26. The story talks about Paul being on trial before King Agrippa who asks him, so Paul's making a defense of the gospel, he's making a defense of his, his work as an apostle, and so the king asks him at that point, are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? Good question. Good question from this king. Are you trying to persuade me to become a Christian? Look what Paul says when he responds to that question. He says, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that not only you, but also all who are listening to me today might become such as I am. The heart of Paul's missionary work is this idea of imitation. That what he's experienced, what God has shown to him and how he has been transformed by God's love and grace is something that he's calling people to come and participate with him in as well. Paul does note at the end of verse 29 in Acts 26, except for these chains. <laughs> right? So he's, he's arrested. He's like, I want you to be just like me, except maybe not with the chains and under arrest and stuff. Again, who he's become is very much an important part of the gospel that he preaches. And in Galatians, of course, we get a glimpse of what that transformation looks like, right? We've already seen here uh, that this one who once was uh, zealous for the traditions of his ancestors, as we hear in chapter 1, verse 14, has now identified or now identifies with the crucified Christ when he states uh, later on, the life I now live in flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me in chapter 2. But look at what verse 12 in our text says. It doesn't just say, uh, I be, become like me. He also goes on to say this, for I also have become as you are. That Paul has become like them, like this audience. 
Timothy George observes this uh, when he writes that the example of Paul as a pioneer, or this example here of Paul is that he's a pioneer of what we might call today in missions contextualization. That for Paul here, uh, George describes it as the need to communicate the gospel in such a way that it speaks to the total context of the people to whom it's addressed. The missionary strategy here, of course, again, according to George, is cultural accommodation without compromise of conviction for the sake of the wider gospel witness. So also part of Paul's strategy here is he comes in recognizing the gospel is a transformative type thing, but there's even more to it than that. It's not just a style kind of thing. It's not Paul just going, hey, let's do this because this is going to be effective and it's going to be great and work, but it's an entire life transformation thing. What Paul recognizes in the gospel is that he can set aside any notion of privilege as a member of the Jesus community. And that privilege that he sets aside is his own Jewish privilege, that he somehow has an exclusive claim to be an heir to God and God's promises. And so he sets that aside because of the gospel, and he goes before this audience that's Jewish and Gentile or non-Jewish, and he becomes like them, not because he's trying to be a chameleon, but because God has made it possible God has leveled the field there, has invited all nations, all people, into this grace, into this salvation, and by this good news. Now, you hear all these things with with Paul talking to his audience, and he's sharing the friendship that they share, and he calls them to come and uh, be like himself. He explains how he had become like them. And you, you hear that, and you start to wonder, do People miss the point in all this stuff. There's a little story when I was in middle school. I was a paper boy. Uh, news carrier was the technical term we used. Um, but people always called me paper boy for some reason. And so we were, we were delivering the Seattle Times. My brother and I actually both had routes. And um, I remember one uh, particular uh, house on that route uh, had a dog named Jack. Jack was kind of an orange dog. Was behind a six-foot-high wooden fence. And he would go crazy when I would ride by with those newspapers. Jack would bang on the the fence, going nuts, barking, snarling. And I thought to myself, if Jack ever were to get out, I'm going to be in trouble. Now, you know when someone says that in a story, what's coming next, right? One day I'm riding, delivering newspapers, and the gates open. And I don't see anybody around. And I really remember thinking to myself, I hope Jack's inside with some people right now. Well, as I was thinking that, guess who appeared at the gateway? Jack. And Jack looked right at me. And for one split second, I'm human. He's canine. We were both thinking the exact same thing. He's going to bite me. (laughs) And I remember Jack came running down the hill of that house faster than I've seen a dog run and more determined than any species on this planet. Because he was making a beeline straight for me. I start pedaling as fast as I can. I'm fighting Jack off for what seemed to be eternity. And finally someone comes and calls Jack off. They take him back in the house. They put him away, lock him up. Don't really say anything to me about the, the hassle that it was for me. Later on, I'm collecting, I'm collecting uh, money uh, from them. They're a, they're a weekend customer. And so I'm up there collecting the bill for the month. We had to go door to door and make that collection. And they answer the door. And the family's standing there, there's a couple of members of the family there, and then Jack peeks his head out beneath the legs of these family members as I'm standing on their porch. And I step back, and there must have been the look of fear on my face. 
because they said, oh, don't, don't, worry, about, don't worry about him. Jack, Jack is Jack's a very nice dog. And I thought, you don't know Jack. <laughs> Take that for what that is. You know, at this point, uh, Paul in his writings of Galatians is shared all this stuff about friendship with them because he's about to level with them and, and make this point. You don't really know these agitators who are stirring things up. You think you have a handle on these, these experts and these teachers and these people who are bringing uh, this type of information to you, calling you to a new type of life, a new type of Christian life, a new gospel. But I don't think you truly understand who these people are. And Paul would say this to them, these are not your friends. These people stirring you up are not your friends in this, this community. In contrast to the relationship that he has with them as a church and as a people, Paul would say these phony friends have created such a stir amongst the Jesus community. And he'll notes this in the first part of 16. He says they are not seeking what is good or the good purposes or good purposes for these Galatian Christians. That they use in the second part of verse 16, they use these exclusionary tactics and techniques to raise their own stock, to make themselves look more and more important, that you're going to desire after them if they exclude you so that you can be included. And that they're creating an environment in verses 19 through 20 in which true spiritual formation is being suppressed. And maybe that's too light of a thing to say here uh, based on the language that Paul uses here. He doesn't just use kind of this wider spiritual formation type language. He says it this way, that Christomorphic formation, Christ in you, Christ being formed in you is what's being suppressed. That's what you're missing out on because of what these folks, these agents are up to. Phony friends bringing a counterfeit gospel is a real problem in the Jesus community. And so a strong response is going to be needed. It's going to be called for at this place. And here's the thing. We heard the first imperative. Here's where a couple more imperatives show up in Galatians. And that action is going to be spelled out. And the guidance that you're going to look for is going to come from a place that seems surprising at first. But it, when you think about it, it makes complete sense. If you're in a conversation, if you're in an argument or a debate, if you're dialoguing even, uh, maybe not as strong as a debate, but if you're just even dialoguing, with folks who are going back to the Torah and saying that you have to be observant to the Torah to be in. Where would you find your guidance to combat that? Paul goes to the Torah. He goes right back to the source. When I was in seventh grade, we had a, a project that we had to do where we had to uh, trace our family lineage. We're going to do what's called a cultural fair. Did anybody ever do a cultural fair around here? Does anybody do those, this, even a thing back in your day or even in modern days? We set up a gymnasium full of all these displays, family trees, and all these things were set up. You'd come for one night, and you'd see all the different expressions of, of backgrounds and histories that people came from. And I remember uh, walking through uh, those things and just, just being really impressed by just all the pictures and the smells of food from different cultures. Well, the Torah gives voice to origin stories. So we think about our own origin story. The Torah gives back to even older stories, ones that we share. If you think about like the stories of Adam and Noah, and even as we've heard in Galatians with Abraham, these are origin stories that we can uh, share in, as well as ones that might seem a little bit more distant to us, uh, still can participate in, but seem a little distant, like Moses, uh, the formation of the Jewish nation, things like that. Um, but as, as we think about this idea of origin stories, uh, 
we also know that the case for the Gentile inclusion in the Jesus community is one that's raised throughout Torah, throughout that origin story. And Paul has taken us back to that place at different points. For a modern reader, though, the reason I bring this up about origin stories, uh, for a modern reader, as we come to this allegory that Paul has placed here in Galatians to make his point, some of us might be freaking out, right, going, what is that? People in slavery? We're using that as an example? This is the metaphor? This is what we're drawing on to make this, this case? And so here for us to say, admit right from the get-go that as we look at what's being interpreted here by Paul, it, might, it feels strange to us as a modern reader because it draws on cultural practices that are different than our own. Um, it also draws on a type of interpretation that's different than our own, that Paul lived at a different time than we live at, and that the stories from the Torah that we read about are happening in a different time. So with all that in the backdrop, with all that recognizing all those places, there's a place here for us to take the story as it comes to us, for us to recognize uh, the cultural pieces that we see here, the things that seem foreign to us, um, that seem strange or out of sorts, and to just simply receive them as the story that's being told to us and the interpretation asking this question, what's Paul doing? Why is he using that? Why is he drawing on these particular pieces? And as we look at that, here's what we discover. The first thing is this, that Paul is using a common practice here of one that his Jewish contemporaries would use to make an argument. He's going to draw not only on the Torah, but the entire witness of Jewish scripture. And we see that here in this text. We can see him drawing on that. Uh, this last week, I talked with uh, one of our reading groups. We talked about, used a term that uh, some of the folks hadn't heard before, which is Tanakh. You hear the Tanakh, not Tanakh on a door, but the Tanakh is the identification of the Old Testament, or what we call the Old Testament, but the Jewish scriptures. It's the three components of those scriptures. So if you put those together, if you put Torah, uh, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim together, that's the three types. And so you have essentially the law, the prophets, and the writings. You put those together and they're Jewish names, it, it forms this, this new word, this cognate word, uh, Tanakh. Paul is going to draw on the three elements, law, prophets, and writing here in this text. We know Torah. He brings that story out from Hagar there. He also draws on Isaiah 54. That's from the prophets. And he's going to allude to Psalm 87, uh, in particular, the Septuagint, or the Greek version of that psalm. He's going to draw on that. That's from the writings. So he grabs from all three spots within Jewish scripture. And so someone reading this at the time would say, Paul is making an argument in a very Jewish kind of way, drawing on the entire witness of scripture. And so that's important to note. Now, th second thing is this is to note that when he draws on the allegory, when he grabs the story, he's going to conclude with this another imperative here. We see that in verse 30. Throw out the slave girl and her son. And we see that, we know that from going back into the Jewish scripture in the Old Testament, we see that as part of the story as Sarah is talking to her husband Abraham. But to recognize that what Paul's doing there is he's literally communicating to these Galatian Christians that this audience, these people, these teachers with this agenda, these agitators who've come in, are to be expelled from the Jesus community. That they have gone too far, that they're preaching of another gospel, they need to be placed out of the community so that they are no longer giving witness to what is false and phony. Um, but that's where this has come, and he wants them to hear this in the starkest and the plainest of terms. And so he draws on that story of Abraham once more. But that's not all. He throws another imperative at him. Second part of verse 1 in our text. He says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. In other words, all that stuff that they told you, all those things that they told you you had to do, 
All that plus after Jesus that they said, don't do it. Stop now. Put the knife down. Don't get involved in this. Not only is the, the false teaching the false teachers to be placed outside the community, the actual teaching itself has no place in the community. And Paul wants the, them to hear that in the most, again, starkest of terms. N.T. Wright will go on to identify this as the long-range meaning of his early anathemas that Paul says in chapter 1. Remember those divine curse. This is what that looks like, this casting out of these agitators and then the expelling of this witness of this teaching. So what do we make of all this in our own age, in our own modern times? Like, how do we, how do we make of all these things? We've got these unusual stories. We've got these unusual texts. Um, Paul seems to be making a point that he's, he's made throughout, but now he's telling them to do something, which is to, to expel the teaching and the, these teachers. But what do we do with that in our own day? Are we going to throw somebody out here? Is that, is that what we're supposed to do with this text? Well, let me bring up two themes here for us to consider this morning that I think are important themes that we see here in the text. Friendship and freedom. Have we spent any time talking about freedom in our culture lately? Has that been a topic at all? Has friendship been a topic? So friendship. I want to make the, a statement here that I think Paul would echo as well here. The importance of friendship in the Christian community. There's an article that ran in January from The Atlantic. And it was a story entitled, The Pandemic Has Erased Entire Categories of Friendship. <laughs> How was that for a doomsday title? <laughs> entire categories. I didn't know I had categories of friendship. Um, but it's erased entire categories of friendship. The article goes on to talk about uh, the loss because of masks, because of social distancing, because of isolation that we've, that we've missed. If you think of your inner circle of friends, we've lost our outer circle of friends. So the way that we might relate to different people within culture, the, the people that we might talk to, is for, if you're dining out, then you might have to talk with the wait staff and stuff. This is your outer circle of people you come in relationship with, that you have contact with. You might even know their name, your barista, uh, as you're talking to them and, and sharing with them, that those were lost during the pandemic. And it has a psychological effect on us as a culture. Well, we see that here in the church as well, don't we? We see that when we have friends who are not able uh, to join us for whatever reason, that they, they remain in isolation, they can't uh, come and be part of a, a group that gathers. And even as we gather and we're wearing masks and we're uh, social distancing or we're not comfortable in the same ways of interacting with people that we did previously, that all these pieces have eroded our friendship and our ability to relate in friendship-type ways. Remember, Paul draws on this idea of friendship as he speaks about and makes the case for what the steps they need to take next. And I fear that as our friendships erode, as that starts to splinter and we become more and more isolated and separated, that what will follow in that is our ability to be able to speak with one another in a way that sometimes correction and teaching requires to have a good hearing, to be heard well. And so we do well uh, to attend to this area in our own lives, to attend to Christian friendship and to fight for it, to really wrestle with it and, and seek after it, to take the extra steps to make sure that those bonds aren't easily severed and broken, but that we fight to keep those together as though our lives depend on it because our community's life does. The second thing is this, uh, freedom doesn't mean everything goes. <laughs> Paul's pretty clear on that in this text. I know in cultural freedom, oftentimes we start getting the idea that freedom means I'm going to do what I think I should do, and there's nothing you can say about it because I just play the freedom card, right? It happens to be red, white, and blue, the card I hold up. But freedom, right? Uh, uh, freedom, right? I can do whatever I want. I got freedom. 
And that's not what Paul's saying here. And that's not what Galatians is going to go next. He's going to outline some of those places of what it looks like to inhabit and live into that, that freedom that Christ has given to us. So for us here, not to make the mistake that freedom means everything goes. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is there's been a release and a relief from something that has been holding us back from experiencing what God has for us. That we now can belong, that we can now participate, that we can be a full heir, a full heir, one who gets the inheritance. That's the freedom that Paul's been talking about. And those who came into this, this congregation, into this community back in the first century and preached something other than that, we're preaching true slavery. We're preaching true chains. And Paul would say to us, don't go there and don't allow them to continue and persist in this. Friends, as we go through the coming season, as we continue in this season, my hope is that we can experience the joy that God has for us, knitting us together as family, but also calling us to a place of friendship. And as we do, we might experience the joy that God has for his people. That is the joy of living in true freedom, not bound by traditions, not bound by all kinds of change that we create for ourselves, but rather experiencing the boldness and the freedom that comes in Christ through God's Spirit. Maybe so for our lives today and every day.